For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in. Like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. This week we have the news with me, Brittany, and Sam, as usual. Clint is also here, but a little differently. You'll hear his news. Then I interview Robert Reich, former Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration, who's also an author and professor. We've got to reform our democracy and make sure that people have more say over their lives, uh, and that is a democracy that is not just democracy in terms of voting, although that is obviously critically important, but it's also... It's also democracy at the workplace. It's economic democracy. Tickets to our live shows in Chicago and Minneapolis are officially available now, and we'll be announcing the guests soon. Go get your tickets at crooked.com slash event. And this message is inspired by the last episode of Game of Thrones. If you watch it, this is not a spoiler. If you don't watch it, you'll still get something out of it. There's a moment where somebody asks one of the main characters, what do you say to the bad guy? And the character responds, not today. And I love it because it's such a simple declaration, but also a statement about like how hard you're willing to fight. You know what? I get that there are bad things on the horizon. I get that things aren't working out the way we wanted it to be. But today is not the day that I plan to lose. And for so many of us, we come up against like a hard road, a hard moment. And we are like, you know what? It is what it is. We tried. Uh, but so much of our response should be. Not today. Like, today's not the day that I'm planning to lose. Like, I'm not giving up. I'm going to keep fighting. So when I think about what it means to be up against this administration, what it means to be under the specter of even more trauma in so many communities, my response is not today. Let's go. What's going on, everybody? I wasn't able to make the news this week with the rest of the crew, but I wanted to pop in with something that I've been thinking about a lot. So... One thing I really appreciate about the 2020 primary is that it often allows space for conversations on issues that we might not otherwise be discussing, and it allows for a sort of reimagining of what's possible in the political landscape. And one of the things that's recently come up is this question of should people in prison be able to vote? Currently, uh, not everybody knows, but there are two states in the country that allow people who are incarcerated to vote, and they are Maine and Vermont. We should also note that Maine and Vermont are the two whitest states in the country. So I will let you decide if it's a coincidence that those are the two states that allow people who are incarcerated to vote. Telling people in prison that they can't vote is really predicated on this idea that folks who are incarcerated undergo what scholars refer to as a civic death. And that's a suspension of the normal rights the citizens have when they are behind bars. And while it was once true that people in prison had essentially no rights when they were incarcerated, that hasn't really been the case over the last half century or so. And we've kind of moved away from that. People in prison now have freedom of worship. They have freedom of protest. They have freedom of speech. So it makes you wonder, why is it that we've decided that we can take away some of incarcerated people's inalienable rights, but not take away others? The vast majority of states have people in prison who cannot vote. Yet these folks are often counted in the population for the legislative district of their prison, which is the main factor that determines a state's number of representatives and its presidential electoral votes. So essentially what we're saying is that we can count your body, but we can't count your voice. We can't count your vote, which has a, an unsettling resemblance to our past, obviously, in which the three-fifths compromise gave the South political power by counting enslaved people's bodies as 
three-fifths of a person for the purpose of counting the population, but also not allowing Black people who were enslaved to vote. I've been working personally in prisons for the past five years now, and I can tell you there's not a single person in there who doesn't deserve the right to vote. And to suggest otherwise, for me, really reflects a sort of regressive view of who is and isn't deserving of citizenship. And a sort of cursory glance at history makes clear that one of the central functions of mass incarceration, as we understand it in a contemporary sense, is that it serves as another insidious tool for voter suppression. And this isn't a matter of my opinion. This is something that the people who built this system uh, have pretty much named outright especially in the sort of post-emancipation context, post-1865 and post-1877 end of Reconstruction. Something that always also came up was this idea of should the Boston bomber be allowed to vote? Should Dylan Roof be allowed to vote? But you should know that people will always use the most egregious and heinous examples of violence to legitimize an entire social project of oppression, an entire social project in this context of prison. So using the Boston bomber to ask if people in prison should be allowed to vote only reifies the caricatures of a system that throws millions of people's lives away every single day. I find it difficult also to take seriously this notion that Someone would acknowledge that the criminal justice system is broken, but then turn around and lift that same system up as being an effective means of deciding who does and does not get to vote. To me, you can't have it both ways. It's one or the other. So there's a lot to say about this, but I'll just leave it to Justice Earl Warren to have the final word, who wrote in 1958 that citizenship is not a right that expires upon misbehavior. And while Warren wasn't talking specifically about people in prison, it follows through that logic that if people in prison remain citizens and retain their civic status throughout their sentence, then there should be no reason that they don't maintain the most basic of civil rights, which is the right to vote, the right to cast a ballot. And we really have to push ourselves to interrogate why we accept some social phenomena as normative and inevitable, and ask why we shouldn't be able to reimagine something different and something that is more aligned with justice and not punishment for the sake of punishment. Hey, y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Packetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam's Way on Twitter. And this is DeRay at DeRay on Twitter, D-E-R-A-Y. So we officially have, at least in my lifetime, the largest race for homecoming king or queen that I've ever personally seen <laughs> on the Democratic side. And by homecoming queen or king, I obviously mean the 2020 presidential election. We've officially got 20 candidates running for the Democratic nomination, which is a whole lot. And there was a lot of action this week. Oh, yeah. So we had uh, an official announcement from Biden that he's entering the race, which is sort of something that has been talked about for a while, but people sort of assumed that he might run. And here is the official announcement. So it should be interesting to see how that complicates the race. And given his record, how he starts to hopefully deal with some of that to make himself a candidate that could potentially win. But I'm curious to see how that whole process unfolds. Well, I mean, apparently he started by calling Anita Hill and in a conversation that seemed unsatisfactory to her, according to the New York Times. I haven't seen his interview on The View, but it sounds as though he's not outright apologizing. He feels like he did everything in his power to make sure that she didn't have a rough experience. Um but that he's sorry that she had the experience that she did, which is a thing he said. <laughs> you know, my question the other day was, who qualifies for the base? Because it's 20 people running. It was like, what's going on? And then I looked. 530 is tracking everything. And as of the last article they put out, 16 candidates have qualified for the debate. So 
The DNC has capped it at 20 total people for the debate, so it's filling up. Granted, there are only 20 people so far on the ticket on the, on the Dem side. And the plan right now is to do the debates over two nights, which is sort of unfortunate because who knows how they'll be grouped. So there might be some pairings that like we actually don't care about. And I don't even know what it'll mean to like focus on 10 people one night and six people the other night, like to do that well. The pairings could be really interesting or they could actually leave some real questions unanswered. And I think it's really difficult when you've got candidates who are starting to make their name in certain policy areas who won't actually be able to face each other. Speaking about policy, there has been one candidate who has really led the policy conversation and a whole bunch of other candidates who have really not talked about policy much and have tended to talk about their stories and sort of ambiguous values that aren't defined in specific policy prescriptions. But in terms of policy, I I mean, there really hasn't been a competition at all. It's been Elizabeth Warren coming out with plan after plan after plan after plan, detailed plans, ambitious and far-reaching plans to address the nation's problems. And then there's sort of been like another tier of candidates that have released like a single plan or maybe two plans to address issues. So I know like Kamala Harris proposed teacher pay raises, you know, Julian Castro proposed a plan on immigration. And then there have been sort of a, a whole bunch of other candidates, again, that haven't really proposed any plans, but are doing a lot of talking about something, I guess, like values or or something else, but not really in a sort of defined way. First of all, I don't know why CNN did that, like, five candidate, one hour thing the other day. Like, that was just, that just seemed like a lot. Amy Klobuchar began it. She was the first one. And I literally didn't see any person talk about Amy Klobuchar. I missed hers, but I saw no conversation about hers. Warren is, like, really leading Buttigieg's Buttigieg's sort of notion that people who are incarcerated uh, shouldn't be able to vote was disappointing, to say the least. And, you know, what was hard about it is that I think that, like, there were some conservative people who loved it, who made him like, they were like, you know, this is actually exactly the guy we want because it's sort of that, like, tough on crime sort of approach. And then there were a lot of people of color who were really disappointed. Uh, I also thought his answer on, like, why he didn't have policies right now didn't make a lot of sense to me. I thought that was not a very convincing stance. Uh, So... Of the last week, like my opinion changed on and not necessarily in a favorable way. Yeah, I was disappointed by some of those things, to say the least. Um, The She the People Forum also happened, which made history because it was the very first presidential forum of its kind to focus specifically on the issues of women of color. It was moderated by two women of color. They capped the forum at eight candidates. And I think that they had a certain cutoff date by which you had to formally announce. So Pete Buttigieg, for example, actually didn't make that cutoff. Um, I think it was also the day of his, I believe, father's memorial service. So I think there are a couple of reasons why he wasn't there. But apparently Elizabeth Warren was the only candidate to receive a standing ovation. And Bernie Sanders received what people have described as a mix of boos and jeers and loud audible groans. The clip that received an audible groan that I heard was that apparently the question was asked to all of the candidates, why should women of color elect you? And he returned to a talking point that he used quite often in 2016 about marching with Dr. King in the 60s. And this time he added being one of the few white senators to support the nomination of Jesse Jackson when he ran for president in the late 80s. 
And frankly, people of color have been saying for a long time that not only were they tired of that talking point, but they were essentially asking the same question Janet Jackson did, what have you done for me lately? And felt like he wasn't answering that. So certainly an interesting week in the race. Um, I personally do not have a, a heavy favorite yet, but I'm watching everybody very closely. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, They sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now... Whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. So my news is about Florida. And, you know, after the tireless work of organizers, particularly the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, this past election to pass Amendment 4, enfranchising 1.4 million voters in the state, people with past felony convictions, uh, now the state legislature, which is solidly Republican controlled, is working to undermine that amendment. 
what they have done is propose two bills, one in the Florida House of Representatives, the other in the Florida State Senate. And this past week, the House passed HB 7089, which is their bill. And what that would do is establish what many people are calling a poll tax on those 1.4 million people. Uh, In order to have their voting rights restored, it requires them to pay off all outstanding fines and fees and debts and restitution associated with that conviction. And as we know, being convicted of a felony, especially in a state like Florida, and then of course being put, whether it's on probation or parole, uh, continuing to serve an incarceration sentence, all of that's associated with a, a massive amount of fines and fees and, you know, supervision fees, fees to actually pay for part of your own incarceration, uh, fees associated with restitution, all kinds of other charges uh, that can often stack up to be in the thousands. Uh, And what the state is trying to do is say that in order to be able to vote, you have to pay off all of that. And this is sort of the latest effort by Republicans, not just in Florida, but, you know, across the country to undermine citizen-initiated ballot initiatives uh, that have passed with wide majorities. Amendment 4 passed by about 65% of the vote and undermine those efforts through Republican-controlled state legislatures. And the estimates of how many people this would actually impact of that 1.4 million uh, are sort of all over the place. Anywhere from uh, hundreds of thousands to upwards of 1 million of those people would be impacted by this uh, and essentially have to pay off this poll tax uh, in order to vote. Uh, And of course, this is something that is not without historical precedent because Florida was the first state to pass the poll tax in 1889, which was specifically designed to make it harder for black people to vote. And it seems like the Florida legislature is trying to do this again, at least the Florida House representatives. A similar bill is in the Florida State Senate right now that's slightly better because it allows people to convert their outstanding fines and fees to a a civil lien, which, you know, once it's sort of converted to a civil lien because they're not able to pay those off, uh, that actually would not be factored into the judgment of whether or not their voting rights are restored. But overall, the bill still would disenfranchise a large number of people. That bill is SB 7086, and it needs to be opposed. You know, leave it to Florida to do the on-brand thing. Uh, I did not realize that they were the state to essentially invent the poll tax um, and introduce that into American practice. Uh, And here we are all over again, because that's exactly what this is. Any fee that you have to pay in order to exercise the rights of your citizenship is absolutely a poll tax. And it does not matter what that fee is, how the fee was incurred, or how long it has been owed. The fact of the matter is there should be nothing that stands between you and your franchise And it was already a large enough hurdle to get over to get 60% of the vote to allow um, these formerly incarcerated folks in Florida to be able to receive the vote once again, uh, which should have never been taken away from them. And now this is yet another hurdle. But I know that the folks who have been fighting for this Florida Rights Restoration Group, Desmond Mead, so many other folks, I know that they expected this, right? I know that this was the exact kind of backlash and political maneuvering that they anticipated, given that whenever people of color, marginalized people make progress, that there will always be pushback against that. And so now is the time to continue to strategize. Now is the time to operate in the ways that demonstrate that we expected the backlash 
and then we're going to keep marching forward anyway. So it's unfortunate, but this is completely on brand. And if this is who Florida has always been, then this is who we should expect Florida to continue to be. And we should also be recognizing that as we take on this fight around the country, it's going to be a long-term fight because, you know, a a ballot measure passing or the reestablishment of the franchise for formerly incarcerated people is just a first step. Unfortunately, it's not the win entirely. You know, the other thing, and we talked about this before, is that you think about a million people getting the right to vote back and how what that could do to change what elections look like. It could be pretty dramatic. And I just want to go through, not necessarily in Florida, but just in general, like what it means that your vote really counts. So in Florida, there have been a lot of elections uh, in the past that have been decided by certainly less than a million votes. And having so many people who have been disenfranchised, given their right to vote back, could really change Florida in a, in a permanent way. But you think about in 2018, the Democratic primary for Baltimore County Executive in July was decided by just 17 votes. If you remember in 2017, a Virginia House of Delegates race ended in a tie out of more than 23,000 votes. And uh, the tie was broken by pulling a name out of a bowl, which is sort of wild. In 2016, a Vermont State Senate Democratic primary was determined by a single vote cast out of more than 7,400 votes. In 2016, another Vermont State House seat was determined by one vote out of 2,000. In 2016, a New Mexico State House seat was decided by two votes out of almost 14,000. And in 2016, uh, on Election Day, in the fifth congressional seat from Arizona, it was just a 16-vote margin that widened to a 27-vote margin for the winner after a recount. So, like, it really is real that, like, your vote matters, that every vote counts. And the Florida Republicans get it. They understand the game. They know that, like, just if a fraction of a million people decide to register to vote and then vote that the game could be forever changed in Florida. And these tactics, you know, when people are like, well, voting doesn't matter. It's like these tactics are a reminder that not only does it matter, but the other side will do whatever they can to make sure that like you actually can't exercise that right because they know that you could actually fundamentally change the game. What does it look like in Florida where like we just get all these people out of office and like with this new electorate being able to vote like that is actually possible. So I'm hopeful that like not only does this not pass, but that like in the next election, we just see uh, the formerly disenfranchised like come together and just change Florida politics in a way that is uh, longstanding. And in a way that would affect the entire country, knowing how much presidential elections in the past have hinged on the vote in Florida, obviously, in particular, the Bush Gore year. And so if you are living in Florida, this is the time to call your state representative and your state senator uh, and demand that they refuse to pass this legislation, Uh, in particular calling the the state senator, although this might end up going to conference in which both houses of the legislature take a vote. But right now, calling your state senator is top priority. SB 7086 uh, needs to be opposed. And you can go to ourstates.org to find out who your state senator is uh, and contact them very easily. So from bad news to more bad news, a recent study that was published in the journal Health Affairs reveals 
that children born in the United States have a 70% greater chance of dying before adulthood than kids born into other wealthy democratic countries. So when you look at other countries, just like the United States of America, our kids are still 70% more likely to die before reaching adulthood. When you break out these numbers, the news is even worse. Infants, so children under the age of one, have a 76% higher risk of death than in other wealthy nations. We also know that the U.S. has an infant death rate from extreme prematurity that is three times that of its peer countries. The fate isn't much better for teenagers. Teenagers aged between 15 and 19 are 82 times more likely to die from gun homicide. The researchers give us some evidence as to why all of these really unfortunate statistics are indeed true. We know that America has 4.4% of the world's population, but accounts for almost half of all of the civilian-owned guns around the entire world. As you would guess, research shows us that the more guns there are in a country, the more gun deaths there are. We also know that childhood poverty in the U.S. is still extremely high, that even with government assistance and taxes, that children under the age of 18 are impoverished at a rate of about 15%. So I'm really frustrated by these statistics. We have entirely too much wealth and too many resources in this country for this to remain true. And I wanted to bring this to the pod because we talk all the time about these individual incidents and we talk all the time about these incredible tragedies. But when I think about young men like Nigel Shelby, a black gay teenager in Alabama who died by suicide due to bullying, when I think about the young people in Park when I think about the young people who face violence in their communities every single day, when I think about young people who are diagnosed with disease and don't have the resources to receive the kind of care that they deserve, even though this country is fully able to provide it, I am incensed by these statistics. So this is another very clear and stark illustration of the role of public policy in saving lives. And, you know, oftentimes we hear, and I think we heard more often before the 2016 election, but still hear from time to time, that the federal government sort of doesn't play a, a determinative role in people's lives, that, you know, there are a lot of things going on, and that the government, particularly the federal government, is sort of just a small factor in the outcomes that we see. But when you compare the rates of children dying before adulthood in the U.S. compared to other nations, and then you contrast that with you know, how they approach this issue from a public policy perspective, there's just such stark differences. Even when you think about some of the federal policies that are already in place, like those are actually making a huge difference. The problem is that they're just not at the scale of the problem. Uh, and so, you know, when you look at existing programs like Medicaid, when you look at existing programs that are sort of redistributive, you see that they are already bringing down the childhood poverty rate substantially. You know, the childhood poverty rate would be 25%. Uh, without these programs. And instead, it's 15% because of these programs. And those are millions of children who are benefited by these programs. And then when you look at the public policy conversation, despite, you know, lives being saved through these programs, it's sort of like the people in charge, particularly on the Republican side, are trying to cut those programs, not expand them. So when you see Medicaid, uh, instead of expanding Medicaid, uh, many states have chosen not to expand it. The Supreme Court 
allowed them not to expand it despite that being a requirement under Obamacare. And as a consequence, thousands and thousands and thousands of both adults and their children have been impacted by the absence of those benefits. And, you know, when you look at gun violence, it's another issue where clearly there are solutions. Clearly other nations have addressed this issue and and do not have the rates of gun violence that the U.S. has. But instead of seeing action from the federal government, we see quite the opposite. We see the president at a NRA conference this past week talking about how great it is that they continue to obstruct any type of reform to improve gun safety. Uh, so, you know, this is a problem that is solvable. Uh, and instead, we see, according to this this article, 600,000 preventable deaths of children over the past several decades because of our inaction sort of as a nation to address this through public policy. You know, this study was the first of its kind. It looked at data from 1961 to 2010. And before this study that was published in Health Affairs, uh, there had only been this sort of analysis in certain age groups, like sort of one to nine, like in the teenage group. It hadn't been expansive across all of adolescents, and I thought that was interesting. But what they note is that children in the U.S. were three times more likely to die from prematurity at birth and more than twice as likely to die from SIDS. And I just didn't even, like, three times more likely to die in the U.S. from a premature birth really blew my mind. Like, just thinking about the real life implications of what it means that we don't guarantee uh, health care for mothers. And we talked about maternal health, especially black women's maternal health uh, a lot. But like three times more likely really struck me as like, you know, there are a ton of kids who are just not surviving birth. Like we could fix that. It's not like this is not preventable. And like that really blew my mind. And with teenagers, I was even more shocked is that Teenagers were more than twice as likely to die from motor vehicle accidents and 82 times more likely to die from gun homicide in the U.S. than in other wealthy nations. So I understood the gun violence thing in the sense that we've talked about gun violence a lot and we know that the prevalence of guns often leads to more death. So that was not as shocking, but I just had no clue that car crashes were like still happening as frequently or were as still as deadly. Like I just didn't, twice as likely to die from a car crash really blew my mind. And we've mandated seatbelts and things like that but like twice as many dying from car crashes really was surprising to me like i also think uh, an increase in public transportation could help decrease that and i'm sure that with the new data will uh when this study is redone that like the prevalence of uber and lyft and the ride sharing will hopefully decrease these things but uh if you had asked me to think about the top 10 i would not have said uh car crashes my news is an article published in The Appeal, and it's called Are Sheriffs Necessary? I was fascinated by it. You know, we obviously talk about the police a ton. And this article is is asking the question, are sheriffs necessary? So sheriffs, often their role is that they oversee the jail system. Uh, LAPD has uh, the biggest jail in the country, which has about 22,000 people in it. And there's a sheriff who just got elected sort of on a platform that he was going to be some sort of a reformer. And in practice, he turned out to be not a reformer. And amongst other things, has hired some of the sheriffs that have previously been fired. That's sort of the context. And one of the reasons why people are questioning whether sheriffs at all are necessary is because of their vast power and the seeming lack of accountability. So a lot of sheriff's offices are written into the Constitution. So, you know, police chiefs, police chiefs manage police departments, sheriffs. The sheriffs have the same sort of power in general, but they ostensibly manage like everything to do with jailing. So like they're in the courts. They manage the jails. Uh, But in a lot of places, there are a lot of them. And they generally have the same police powers as regular police. But if they arrest you for, like, speeding or something, then they take you to 
the county jail, uh, things like that, but same rough police powers in almost every city. And what they found in in L.A. essentially is that there's no real oversight. And there's this question of like, what does it mean to have a policing agency that has no real oversight? So like the board of supervisors can investigate but can't really do anything uh, to the sheriff, can't remove the sheriff, can't set departmental policy. And, and what is interesting from just like a philosophical standpoint is that a lot of sheriffs are elected, actually. So the sheriff in L.A. is elected. So the question becomes, like, isn't election enough to be strong accountability? That seems like it works. But what you find is that either people don't understand the officer sheriff or they have no clue that there's literally no oversight, that like the oversight mechanism is broken in so many ways. And until I understood this a little better, I had no clue uh, that California law almost allows the elective sheriff to do whatever they want. And that theoretically, the state attorney general can oversee and possibly remove a county sheriff. But that in practice rarely happens because, you know, the, the attorney general is operating at the state level, California's big state. And what is that person doing to like intervene in local issues? Uh, what we find is almost nothing. I also didn't know that there are counties and cities across the country that have worked really hard to get rid of the sheriff or to get rid of like the office of sheriff. So in Connecticut, voters eliminated the position of sheriff and moved those uh, duties to a new statewide system. And in Connecticut, it was because a series of corruption scandals in Missouri, St. Louis County in 1954 created a county police department instead of the sheriff's office. Uh, in Riley County, Kansas, they created a consolidated police department in 1972 to replace the sheriff's office. And they had to rewrite law. And in Miami-Dade County in Florida in the 1960s, they also got rid of the role of the sheriff's office. So it didn't stick in Miami-Dade County. And the Sheriff's Association lobbied for a bill in 2018 uh, to make them reestablish the sheriff's office. But it made me think of how the sheriffs are sort of like a under studied and underexamined part of policing, but have a huge impact both on communities, certainly on jail systems, because they actually run and administer jailing in most places. And even though it's an elected office, has very little oversight. So what would it mean to make it an appointed office if we make it an office at all, so that there's somebody who actually can investigate and like oversee and do some real stuff. And you know that even in the police departments we have, there's very little oversight. So the thought that we have an elected essentially police chief who can do whatever they want and not even face term limits in places like uh, California because of the way the law is set up. Uh, it was really troubling to me and I wanted to bring that here. The quote that I loved most from this piece was that no office is less accountable or more reliable in producing scandal. Joe Matthews from a San Francisco Chronicle op-ed stated that. And I think that this point that you're bringing up about accountability matters so much, not just because there is no accountability, but also because we know that there's so much opportunity for the sheriff's office to engage in scandal and to know that there are counties that got rid of the sheriff's office entirely invites us to have some real radical imagination about this. I think that if we can have radical imagination about not having these kind of elected or appointed offices even for this particular role we can actually get to the point where we can more easily reimagine what public safety looks like. It actually doesn't have to look like this. It actually doesn't have to look like police departments that have their roots in plantation policing. It doesn't have to look like sheriffs that are elected and reelected and reelected despite the amount of scandal that they've always had. It doesn't have to look like a complete lack of accountability 
on the back end and no justice on the front end. And I think that this piece that you shared with us, Jeray, not only raises an important question, but forces us to ask better questions more broadly about the system of policing in this country and why we refuse to let go of a system that very clearly has not worked for all people, nor kept all people safe since the very beginning of its inception. Definitely. And not only are those the right questions to ask, but I think structurally looking at sheriffs, you know, what I was struck by in, in reading this article was just how much of when we talk about mass incarceration, just the role that sheriffs play and how sort of underreported that role has been. You know, oftentimes we talk about prosecutors being a very important part of the existing sort of system of mass incarceration. Uh, we talk about police chiefs very frequently on this podcast and I think nationally as well. Uh, but in talking about the sheriffs, you know, when you think about structurally that there are about 2.2 million people incarcerated at any one given time in the United States, uh, 1.5 million of those are in the prisons and between 600 and 700,000 are in the jails. Uh, but that actually vastly sort of underestimates the role that jails actually play within the system of mass incarceration. Because people are in jail for shorter stays than prisons, there are actually about 10.6 million new admissions to jails every single year. So millions and millions of people are cycling in through jails while the prisons stay relatively constant at about 1.5 million to, to 2 million people entering each year. Jails are responsible for the vast majority of incarceration uh, that is sort of experienced by the large number of Americans that are impacted by the system of mass incarceration. And sheriffs have sort of this completely unaccountable and sort of all-powerful role in overseeing the jail system. And so to shift the conditions within jails, to shift the level of how people are being arrested and entering the jails in many cases, what experiences they're having within those jails, brutality within the jails, as well as shifting things like relationships between ICE and sheriffs to not only send people to jail, but then deport people after they've been sent to jail. All of those things, sheriffs play a fundamental role in deciding. And this is an elected position, right? And so thinking about, first of all, structurally, how do we put in place the right policies and practices to make sure that that's an accountable position, that there's oversight, or maybe even abolishing the position altogether and creating a completely different model that works better. And then also thinking about how do we use elections as a process to put people in those positions uh, while we work towards those broader goals that can help us think differently about how that role might be played, to think differently about helping to create a vision for transforming conditions, for using those powers to transform the conditions of incarceration, uh, and to actually make work towards uh, the ultimate goal, which is not only ending mass incarceration, but putting in place a system that is accountable and that is ultimately rehabilitative. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. 
for your words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. And now my interview with Robert Reich, author, professor of public policy at Berkeley and former secretary of labor. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. I want to start talking about your most recent book, The Common Good. And just like what caused you to write that book in this moment? And then how do you define the common good? Well, this is the moment where I think the common good is most under attack. Uh, The Trump administration, uh, Donald Trump himself, a lot of the people who surround Trump, uh, the enablers of Trump, uh, particularly in the Republican administration, they seem to have no sense that there is a common good that binds us together, except maybe uh, the border. I mean, in fact, the definition of the common good coming out of the Trump administration and Donald Trump himself is that uh, the nation is defined by its borders and all we have to do is be tougher about who crosses the border and we have kind of a secure nation. Well, that's not the way the common good was conceived of over the last uh, 200 years. This country really is based on a very, very different conception of the common good, which comes from, and you can see evidence of it in the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, uh, in in Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and all sorts of ways in which uh, our leaders have underscored that we have responsibilities to each other as members of the same society. And those responsibilities derive from a set of common ideals. And those ideals, they were about uh, human dignity and about equal opportunity and the rule of law and uh, making sure that the norms and values of democracy were upheld and honored. Well, those things have sort of gone by the boards, or at least under Trump and the Republicans and some business leaders today, and I want to add them to my list of people that don't seem to understand that we have a common good. There's sort of an atmosphere today as if, uh, well, let's get away with as much as we can. Let's push the envelope as far as we can. Dan be the institutions and the connective tissue and norms that kept us together. You've advised so many presidents and seen society in in a host of upheavals, different sort of issues be the biggest issues of the day from a social norm perspective. Did you ever foresee this moment coming with Trump? Well, his election took me by surprise just because I was I was sucked in, as many people were, by the polls. You know, I'll never follow election polls again quite the way I did before. But beyond that, I was not surprised in the sense that for about the past 20 years, I've been predicting that as the economic gap becomes wider and wider in terms of income and wealth and political power and also racism, which is indirectly related to all of these things, uh, that the country would start coming apart and we would either be electing a 
a reform populist, you know, a progressive populist who would really dramatically reform our democracy, or we would elect an authoritarian populist who would say, follow me, particularly you white nationalists, and I will lead you toward a kind of uh, xenophobic, racist uh, future that uh, you want because you're so scared about the future as it is. I was saying this, writing about this, I don't think I, in fact, I'm sure I didn't expect it to happen as soon as it did. I would also love to know what you think about the way the internet has changed politics. So you were in politics before social media was a thing, before viral videos, Instagram Live, you know, you make your own videos now. So I'd love to know like how you've seen the internet change the way either politicians function or like the way we think about democracy in general. It's had a huge, huge impact in positive and negative ways. Uh, here's the thing. I fear that a lot of politicians and a lot of political organizers view the Internet as a substitute for direct person-to-person -person grassroots politics, and it isn't. Uh, the way you get real commitment, and you know this because you've been around this for a long time, the way you get real commitment and loyalty and tenacity, the willingness to continue to put in hard work over a long period of time, and that's the only way you get political change anywhere, particularly in this country, uh, is when people actually meet up together and have those personal relationships. The internet is very good at organizing people initially. What we've got to remember is that the internet is no substitute and social media are no substitute for direct person-to-person -person relationship building that forms the social capital of social change. So many people would say that the numbers are on our side, that like more people voted for Dems in the midterms and voted for Trump total, that like it's not a lack of people who believe, but it's a lack of engagement on the left is what some people say. What is your diagnosis of like, how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? We can have Trumps as far as the eye can see. If we don't deal with this underlying problem, uh, we've got to reform our democracy and make sure that people have more say over their lives. Uh, and that is a Democracy that is not just democracy in terms of voting, although that is obviously critically important, and voting rights have been really shattered in many, many respects, and uh, we can get back to that. But it's also, it's also democracy at the workplace. It's economic democracy. We've allowed this country as an economy to become more and more concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer people, fewer and fewer corporations. And at the same time, workers in the form of labor unions or any other kind of labor organization or worker organization have less and less power. A lot of people now, 24% of the workforce, they're on their own. They don't even have full-time employment. Uh, and talk about lack of power and talk about uh, lack of security. These people are really at the epicenter of what is unfortunately an emerging economy. And if we are a just society, if we're a fair society, if we're a rich society, particularly, we are going to be able to change all of that, change the trajectory we're now moving in. Are you supporting somebody for 2020 yet? Uh, no, I'm not. And I'll tell you why, because there's so many attractive candidates. I want to see how it it works out. Uh, last time around in the Democratic primary of 2016, I supported Bernie Sanders. Uh, I'm very proud of Bernie Sanders. I think he has done more to change American politics for the better than any person in 
the last 25 or 30 years. And I am still kind of inclined to support him, but I also like Elizabeth Warren a great deal. I like the policies she's coming out with. Cory Booker and Kamala Harris are people who I know and like. There are a lot of very, very attractive. I, I don't remember a, a presidential election where you have an incumbent, where you have as many extraordinarily attractive, strong, progressive candidates coming out on the Democratic side. And uh, I'm just uh, kind of keeping my powder dry. I think a lot of people are. So there's so many people who are like, how do I make sense of all of these people that are seemingly, like you said, attractive? Like, what's your advice for what people should be looking for when they make their decision? Well, number one, we want somebody who is going to win and is likely to win uh, because we've got to get Donald Trump out of the office. This is the most important thing. Uh, how do we do that? What does winning mean? It means getting out the vote. Uh, it means getting people enthusiastic and not only angry about Trump. There are a lot of people angry about Trump, but that may not be enough to get them actually to the polls. They also have to have, uh, you know, they've got to be excited about a vision uh, for the future of this country. We want somebody who is... Uh, going to call on the best of us instead of the worst of us. And I think that's the most important or one of the most important contrasts. And finally, I think we want somebody who is not going to attack other Democrats. It's critically important. Uh, there's going to be a great temptation in the Democratic primary for Democrats to go after each other. We've got to stay as united as possible. So many people would say that the election of Donald Trump is a response to uh, what it meant to have eight years of a black president and that there is a latent racism. I think about even when, when Trump was running, you know, so many people were like, well, he doesn't have a ground game. Like he, the Trump uh, campaign isn't knocking on people's doors and da, da, da. And what we saw for so many people for the first time is like the ground game was like racism. And I, they didn't need it was like Facebook and just straight up playing on people's fears. They actually didn't need to knock on doors. Uh, what do you make of the way we sort of reconcile the issues with race today and like how we deal with them moving forward? Race is a very central, if not the most central issue in American politics. And Republicans have been using the race card for 40 or 50 years. Racism has been a key feature a sad, tragic feature of America since the beginning. It's the original sin. Slavery is the original sin of America. But what's new, what is new, what distinguishes what's happened over the last 40 years from everything before, and I think this has got to be understood, is that you've got a, a white working class that for the first time has been losing ground, has been on a downward economic escalator. And so when a demagogue comes along and takes their anger and frustration and anxiety and channels it toward racism. Uh, you've got the two factors, economic and race, that really propelled Donald Trump into the White House. There's not a lot we can do about either one of these right away. In fact, I think that uh, racism is going to stay. Anybody who thinks that racism is going to disappear overnight or racism disappeared uh, because of Barack Obama is obviously uh, politically and sociologically naive. But we've got to address racism squarely, and we've also got to address Address, uh, the economic reality that the bottom 60% of America continues to drop and more and more economic concentration of income and wealth uh, and political power is at the top. We've got to address both of these. Uh, you can't address one without addressing the other. Do you think the presidency will snap back after him? You know, like it seems like we've stretched 
the limits of what anybody thought that role would do has just been shattered. Like it is so far gone from what people had imagined. Do you think that the next president will be able to bring it back to what it, it has been before? Or do you think it's forever changed and we'll have to just go a different route to like resetting expectations? There's going to be a reaction. I mean, after Richard Nixon was president, a lot of people said immediately in the following uh, you know, months or even years of, of Richard Nixon's terrible presidency. I mean, he stretched the limits of the law. He broke the law. He was a crook, clearly. Uh, and he did more damage to democracy than any president. And I might even include Donald Trump. I have to uh, – some days I think Trump is worse than Nixon. Other, other days I think Nixon is worse than Trump. But we actually had a reaction in this country. A lot of the uh, laws and regulations that were enacted in the wake of Richard Nixon were attempts to prevent anything like that from happening again. And they worked for a while. I mean, for example, McCain-Feingold, a very important law that limited campaign financing until the Supreme Court began striking it down, kind of a distorted, weird interpretation of the First Amendment. Nonetheless, those Watergate reforms were important. And I expect, after having experienced uh, Donald Trump and his predations on democracy, we're going to have another snapback. Is there anything that, given your experience and expertise, that you think we should be talking about more than we are? Yeah, I, I think we should be talking more about Republicans in the Senate, particularly Mitch McConnell, uh, who will go down in history as maybe even worse than Donald Trump in terms of a wrecking ball of democracy. And we also ought to be talking more about CEOs of big corporations uh, because they have failed the test of leadership, in my view, rather than seeing the extraordinary danger that Trump and the Republicans pose to this country through their economic policies and their attacks on democracy. Uh, most CEOs are very supportive of Trump because he's given a huge tax cut to corporations and he's made them much richer than they would otherwise be in the short term. Uh, I think that that kind of irresponsibility in executive suites is going to come back to haunt them. And I think, again, just like Mitch McConnell, history is going to be very, very hard on many of them. Now, what advice do you have to to activists or people in movements, uh, people who have fought and fought and the world hasn't quite changed in the way they wanted it to? What's your advice to them? Number one, nothing good happens in Washington or even in state capitals unless good people outside Washington and state capitals are mobilized and organized and determined to make them happen. Keep the pressure on continuously. Number two, this requires tenacity. Uh, it requires a kind of an ability and a willingness to devote months, years, uh, uh, decades. I mean, nothing is going to change overnight. Anybody who thinks that change is sudden or easy is fooling themselves. You've got to still work at it because the forces of regression and status quoism and racism are still, as we've talked about, hugely present in the United States. What's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? One a journalist uh, about 40 years ago said to me, you know, that there are only really two stories in the media. And one story is, oh, the wonder of it. That is the story about how uh, a person or an organization is doing extraordinary things. It's just amazing, amazing, amazing how fabulous this is. Uh, that's one story. And the second story is, oh, the shame of it. 
uh, and that is a story about scandal or about uh, how somebody you thought was doing great or or was really uh, uh, you know, very, very successful or important or uh, positive influence in society actually is uh, just the opposite. Uh, and if you understand these two stories, not only can you help fashion stories, but you can also be prepared for what is going to happen next. That is, for example, if you are a politician or a public figure and you're in kind of a meteoric, oh, the wonder of it period, you can bet that the size of the, oh, the shame of it story that eventually you are building for yourself is going to be larger and larger depending upon the size of the, oh, the wonder of it story that you began with. Well, I appreciate you joining us today to talk on Pate of the People. Can't wait to stay tuned with what you're doing. And then as we get closer to 2020, would love to see the way you help us think through the candidates and policies. Well, thank you, DeRay. Thank you very much for having me. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 